Good morning. Welcome to Calvary Chapel, the live stream. It's a pleasure to share the Word of God with you today. Thanks for tuning in, and uh, why don't we pray? Thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us all. We lift up those who are afflicted, those who are struggling, those who are having difficulties, Lord. We think about those affected by the pandemic. We pray that your hand of healing would be upon them, that you would protect and provide and guide your people into truth, that we could be your ministers, that we could honor and glorify you. And pray, Lord, that you would fill us with your spirit as we read your word today, that it would sink down into our hearts, that it would impact us, that we'd consider it, and that it would be life-changing and uh, just bring honor to your name. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Proclaiming the majesty and supremacy of Christ, I mean, there's really nothing better than that. It's so fitting and right because there's nothing that's been made that can compare to God and his glory, his goodness. G.K. Chesterton, he wrote a book called The Everlasting Man. I do recommend it. Uh, It really shows the supremacy of Christ over all created things, over men. And he, he talks about how people are different than animals, how uh, man's created in the image of God with a soul, with a conscience, with a will, the capacity to love, to communicate through words and an appreciation of the arts and, and music and beauty. Uh, this desire is in us to, to discover and explore and to ask hard questions and to discuss them and, and come to conclusions and uh, to plan, to build to garden, to care for animals, um, pursue a hobby or careers, to, to want to create a memory or to get mastery in baking or um, seeking God with prayer and praise. That, that makes people very unique compared to any other living creature. And uh, can you imagine leaving dinner prep to a dog with written instructions? Your dog may be very clever and very smart, but I doubt the meal that's presented, which there wouldn't be, would be worth eating. Or would you leave a a chimp to conduct a symphony? And uh, yeah, it it just wouldn't happen. And so man is, is distinct and separate from all animals. And Jesus is that much further beyond any man. He's just beyond compare, the perfect man, the everlasting man. He's unrivaled in glory. He has no peer, and yet he humbled himself to become a man and to walk this earth when God doesn't even need to fly because of his omnipotence. So we'll be in Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 27. And coming up to this point, Jesus had asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And they answered that he was the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said, if you'll come after me, you need to deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. Only those who lose their lives for Christ's sake will save them. It's like if you lose your life for Christ, you'll save your soul. And then he asks them, men who were ambitious, men who had plans, men who would be arguing over which among them would be greatest, he says in Luke 9.25, for what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost. The ambitions of a dog, it's to find a nice warm spot in the sun or to eat a treat. These guys were thinking about kingdoms and authority and power and fame and wealth and honor. And Jesus corrects their misconception to say the kingdom of God, it's not 
um, achieved that way, but through suffering. Jesus would go to the cross for sinners so that we could be born again and glorified with him. And in Matthew and Mark, Jesus was rebuked by Peter when he said that he was going to be betrayed, that he would be killed, but the third day rise again. And Jesus is pulled aside by Peter and says, you're not going to die. Far be it from you that you should have this happen to you. And then Jesus was swiftly, I mean, Peter was swiftly rebuked by Jesus because he's like, you're not mindful of the things of God, but rather the things of men. So we've come to that place, Luke 9, 27, where Jesus says, but I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. Now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. It took eight days for the prophecy in verse 27 to be fulfilled when Jesus was transfigured before Peter, John, and James. Now, a little on the kingdom of God. He says they will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God, the glory of the kingdom. The kingdom of God, it's an eternal kingdom. It's a kingdom that will be established on earth physically when Jesus sets up his throne in Jerusalem, but also in the eternal state. After this world passes away, after the millennial reign and final judgment, it is a permanent state where Jesus reigns supreme uh, now and forever. So it's a, a physical kingdom. It's also a spiritual kingdom. There's going to be an actual place where Jesus reigns, but it's also takes place inside of us through the Holy Spirit where he sits enthroned, it's, it's a kingdom that's within reach of all people who trust in Christ as Savior because Jesus has reached out to us. He has come from heaven to die as a sacrifice for sinners so we could be redeemed. We could have uh, atonement through his shed blood and forgiveness of sins. So Jesus takes Peter, John, and James up to the mountain to pray. The precise location and the time is not precisely known. It's widely believed to have happened at night. And as Jesus prays, it says his face was suddenly altered, that uh, the glorious reality of who he is actually showed for the first time. Just for a brief moment, it's like, His entire life, it had been concealed, but now there's this moment where his glory is shown forth from him and his face, his clothes are radiant with bright white light. Matthew 17, 2, it puts it this way. It says, he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as the light. The word transfigured in Matthew and Mark in those gospels, it's metamorpho in Greek, which is Uh, a complete change. It's from one being to another, like a caterpillar to a moth. And Luke uses the word heteros, which means other or different. So he became different. There was something totally other about what he was when he was transfigured, radiant. It's like Moses, he met with God and his face glowed from the experience, but Jesus was the source of the light on the mountain. It was just white light beaming from him and from his clothing. And I was thinking about the sun from the white. It does emit white light. Uh, All the visible colors of the spectrum are seen in white light, as well as ultraviolet light and infrared, which we can't see. 
And when the white light from the sun passes through a prism, the prism is able to separate the different colors into that rainbow pattern. So an object that looks blue, it looks blue because the blue wavelength is being reflected from that object and the other colors are being transmitted or absorbed into it. And it's fitting that as the light of the world, this white light shone through Christ because he's the one who said, let there be light. And there was light before the sun even was made or the sun or the moon or the stars. I mean, before anything was created, he created this light. He is the source of light. He is the source of life. There was more to Jesus than his disciples had ever seen. And uh, they had to wake up out of a sleep to see it, as we'll see. So Jesus, he's standing, he's, he's talking with Elijah and Moses. Jesus said that the law and prophets spoke to him, and here, he speak, here he's, he's speaking to two very notable prophets, uh, the lawgiver Moses and uh, Elijah. Moses had died on a mountain, and he was received into glory. Elijah, he was translated. He was caught up to, to God without death. And Luke tells us the subject of the conversation, speaking about his decease or literally exodus. So speaking of his exodus and all that he would accomplish in Jerusalem. Days prior to this, Jesus had revealed in, nine, in Luke 9.22, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. By dying on the cross, Jesus would provide atonement for the sins of the world. John the Baptist had recognized him as the Lamb of God. And all who trust in him can be forgiven and receive eternal life. So his, his death would demonstrate the love of God uh, for dying for sinners. His resurrection would show his power over sin and death, that he has eternal life to give, that he is the Savior he claimed to be. And... Uh, yeah, all who are born again, they are adopted into the family of God through faith in Jesus Christ. We are co-heirs with him. And our exit from our body is an entrance into eternal glory with Jesus. So that's something to celebrate. But at the time, the idea of Jesus dying, it was completely unthinkable to the disciples. It even caused them to doubt whether Jesus was actually the Messiah or not. Luke 9.32, it says, But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Then it happened as they were parting from him that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were fearful as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. When the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone, but they kept quiet and told no one in those days any of the things they had seen. Jesus has taken Peter, John, and James to the mountain, and they go to pray. And during the prayer meeting, the disciples nod off. They're all sleeping um, it's funny. They, w they wake up to see Jesus just in dazzling radiance, right? His face is shining. He says when they were fully awake. So maybe they're like, what is this? They thought they were dreaming. They weren't sure it was reality, but then they see Jesus. They somehow recognize Moses and Elijah. Uh, 
speaking with him. They're hearing their conversation. And, and, and as they were departing from speaking with Jesus, Peter pipes up and he says, Master, it's good that we're here. Let's build tabernacles, one for each of you. Maybe he's thinking that he and uh, John and James could provide the free labor just to, to make them comfortable and stay a while. Like, let's, let's hang out up here. This is great. This is amazing. Uh, and Peter, it says, verse 33, he said that not knowing what he was saying. Now, it's a tough lesson for some of us to learn that uh, if you don't know what to say, better not to say anything. Just keep listening and take it in and think about what you say before you speak. Um, and in suggesting to make three tabernacles, what did Peter do? He foolishly was lowering Jesus to the level of a man, just a man, a man like like Moses or Elijah. Moses was a servant of the Lord, but Jesus was the Lord who became a servant. Elijah, he was a prophet, but Jesus much more than a prophet. He's the son of God, the anointed Messiah. These, the glory of Moses and Elijah was not their glory. It was God's glory. It was the glory of Christ they had shared in through faith in God. Peter speaking and and. As he's speaking, it's like the father speaks over him. He interrupts his thoughts. It says this cloud comes and over, uh, envelops them. They, they were afraid. Now, there's a, there's a mention of the cloud, the presence and the glory of God filling the tabernacle. And it said that Moses was not even able to stay in there in Exodus 40, verses 34 and 35. It says, Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested upon it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. There's a similar thing that happened when the temple was dedicated by Solomon in Jerusalem. And we need to remember, God is unapproachable in his glory. Nothing that's been created is likened to God, really. There's not any good example of any living thing to say that's kind of like God because God is so much greater and so much grander and uh, infinite in his wisdom and knowledge and power and might. Um, everything just falls woefully short of giving him the glory he deserves. But he is compared to a consuming fire in his glory, and uh, I'm reminded of Nebuchadnezzar, right? He tells Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego to bow down. They refuse. He says, all right, heat that furnace seven times hotter than usual and throw them in. And it says the men that bound them and threw them in perished because of the intensity of the flames. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were fine. They were loose. They were walking and were seen standing and talking to one likened to be the son of God. When Jesus was transfigured, the disciples experienced the glory of God and yet were miraculously preserved. He didn't bring them there to kill them. He wanted to show them his glory. He wanted to give them a glimpse of the coming kingdom and talk about the way that it would happen through his decease, through his exodus of the body. He would enter into this glory and it would be revealed through him. The voice speaks from the cloud. It says, this is my beloved son, hear him. The statement took them back perhaps to the baptism of Christ when God's voice boomed from the heavens and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And uh, perhaps even to Deuteronomy 18. 
Verse 15, written by Moses, that says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. Like, stop talking. Listen to God. Listen to Jesus. And as suddenly as this majestic scene had begun, they were alone with Jesus and his three disciples on the mount. It says they initially in those days kept silent, but we'll see that Peter did mention this event in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. Feel free to turn there, but the words will come soon, I'm sure. 2 Peter 1, 16 through 18, it says, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter says, I'm not, we're not blindly following the claims of others, secondhand information. We are eyewitnesses. And it was confirmed by John and James that it wasn't just one of them. They all could confirm that what they had seen was true. They saw the glory of Jesus Christ before his death and resurrection. And having seen his majesty, their faith was strengthened. And based on that event, Peter says, that's why we emphasize this coming of Jesus Christ in power because we saw his glory before he died and rose from the dead. And having seen that, we know he's coming again, that he is alive, that he is majestic and glorious. Now, John in his uh, gospel account did not include the transfiguration, but he did write in John 1 verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and and truth. So moving on in Luke 9, verse 37. Now it happened on the next day when they had come down from the mountain that a great multitude met, them, met him. Suddenly a man from the multitude cried out saying, teacher, I implore you, look on my son for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him and suddenly he cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and it departs from him with great difficulty, bruising him. So I implored your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. The next day, Jesus, Peter, John, and James come down from the mountain, and they are met by a large crowd. And among that crowd, there was a man who had brought his son to, G to Jesus' disciples uh, to cast out this demon that was harming his child, his only son. It's like Jesus, the only son, the begotten of the father. He comes down for this case. That's why he came to earth, to minister in cases like this, to help people with problems and issues, life and death problems that nobody else can deal with, right? The problems of sin. And in this case, demonic possession. This, this spirit would convulse the child and wound him. And the words used in the Greek are really strong. It says uh, the evil spirit mangled. It crushed him. It shattered him. And it's like there's nothing the dad could do. He was totally helpless to watch his son uh, be pained by this spirit. 
And it seems like the, it's clear from scripture, the dad had correctly assessed the boy's situation. It wasn't a, uh, you know, epilepsy or seizures from a neurological disorder. And I think seizures alone can be really scary and you feel powerless to do anything. But this was a personality, this was just an, an evil spirit that was harming his son. And, and so hearing about the disciples of Jesus and perhaps their authority that Jesus had given them at the beginning of this chapter, remember, Jesus gave them power and authority over all evil spirits. And so he's like, hey, this is a chance for my son to be healed. And he had brought his son, but they were unable to do anything about it. This generation that Jesus suffered and put up with has continued to this day. It's a faithless and perverse generation. It's like God, he, he literally spoke from heaven about Jesus being the son of God. Jesus is doing these miracles one after another. And yet most people did not believe that he was the son of God. Some people thought he was demon possessed. When the disciples heard that Jesus was going to suffer and die, their faith in him faltered. They said, no, this is not the way. This is not going to happen to you. Perverse, it means to distort, to misinterpret and corrupt. Have we ever been guilty of misinterpretation or corrupting the word? Peter wrongly, he put Moses and Elijah at the same level with Jesus, the disciples imagined that Jesus would establish his kingdom on earth without suffering. They celebrated the power of God as if it was their own. It's like on the mountain and on the foothills, Jesus was surrounded by sinners who were helpless and powerless to do anything without him, his followers included. <laughs> the ones who you think would know better, they were just right along with everyone else. And the scene just illustrates the truth quite literally. Without Jesus, we can do nothing. They could do nothing without Jesus. The disciples that when he sent them out with power and authority, they didn't con convene with him and say, well, there was a case where we couldn't cast out a demon. No, they had all power and authority and they were successful in their first trip. But their faith having faltered, their failure... God allowed this as a good learning experience for them and for us because without Jesus, we can't do anything. Past experiences or success do not guarantee future ability when our ability comes from God through faith in him. Samson, classic case. He's this man that the Holy Spirit was in from, the, from birth, super strong, a judge in Israel. And after having told the secret of his hair, after he was shaved, what did he say when Delilah said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson? He says, I will rise as as other times and shake myself free. But he didn't know that the Holy Spirit had left him. And so he was as weak as any other man. He was powerless over the Philistines who overcame him. Another good lesson from this is it's good for us to never put hope in men. This, this man had brought his son to the disciples, hoping they could help him. But it was only God that could help him. The power and authority to deliver the child, it didn't rest in the disciples, but in Jesus Christ, through faith in him. Now, we can perhaps value the prayers of an elder or a pastor over the simple prayer of a child. I mean, have you ever gone up to a, a young child in primary school and said, will you pray with me? I'm really struggling with this in my life. That may be a good thing to do. If that child trusts God and fears God, that prayer is just, going, just as effective as uh, the minister who served the Lord for his, all his days. 
It's God who's hearing. It's the prayer of faith he answers and he does his wonders. So praise the Lord that Jesus was there to redeem the inability of his followers and teach us. And he does these wonders without number in spite of our unbelief, in spite of living in a perverse and faithless generation. Luke 9, 42. And as he was still coming, the demon threw him down and convulsed him. Then Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the child, and gave him back to his father. The demon did not want to go quietly. It says he convulsed the child again as he came to Jesus. But at the word of Jesus, he was delivered. The child was made whole. Now, if you turn to Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 20, it provides us some extra insight. There's a lot more here that we hear about the, the uh, scene than Luke tells us. And I think uh, for our application today, it's really useful. So Mark 9, verse 20, then they brought him to him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly and came out of him. And he became as one dead, so that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. Do you notice what the man said to Jesus? He says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help. He had brought his son to the disciples. They were powerless to do anything. His faith wavered. But Jesus kind of returns his words back to him. He says, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Belief, it's a matter of surrendering our will. We look at the situation. We say, things have just failed time and time again. This has been happening for so long. There's no hope here. But faith looks to Jesus and says, he does everything. He does everything well, and he will. He does have the power to heal, and he will heal because that is his will. So this man, he he professes he believed, but he also confessed his unbelief with tears. To each of us, the Bible says, is granted a measure of faith, not all faith. So there's a degree of unbelief to be dealt with in all of us. Jesus can do everything. It was nothing for him to expel the demon. It's clear then that the man did believe. Jesus, he he didn't choose not to heal the son because of the unbelief the man confessed, but having believed, he was healed and delivered. Now, there's a, if you keep, continue on in Mark 9, verse 28, there's a really insightful interaction between Jesus and his disciples in Mark 9. 928. And when he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? So he said to them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. The disciples were a bit confused. They're like, we have all power and authority. This has always worked before. Uh, why, Why were we unable to cast out this demon? But Jesus' answer, it shows there's different kinds of demons. Jesus, obviously, having fasted and prayed, was equipped to deal with it. Also, he was the son of God. 
Um, I, I really like what Clark said in the Enduring Word commentary. It says, they were confounded at their want of success, but not at their want of faith, which was the cause of their miscarriage. It's way easier to say, why isn't this working than where is my faith? Why don't I believe? Their failure was a learning moment to seek the Lord with prayer and fasting instead of assuming that due to the power and authority Jesus had given them, all would be easily done. There would be no work involved. There'd be no sacrifice or necessity to, to, uh, to labor on their end. Like it would just be given to them. No. And they wouldn't be earning it by praying and fasting. But when we fail, may we seek the Lord. May we seek him for the faith and confess our unbelief like this father did. Praise God for his faithfulness, his grace and compassion that he can do what government and medical experts and expert, you know, pastors and people. He, he can do what we cannot do, what we can't even think about doing. He, he gives us hope in a hopeless world, in a perverse and faithless generation. All right, so Luke 9, starting in verse 43 and they were all amazed at the majesty of God. But while everyone marveled at all the things which Jesus did, he said to his disciples, let these words sink down into your ears, for the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying, and it was hidden from them so that they did not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. When they had seen Jesus cast the demon out of the uh, child, the people, it says they marveled. They were amazed at the majesty of God. And that word majesty, it's the exact same word in the Greek that Peter used to describe the majesty of Jesus when he was transfigured in glory. Same word. At that moment, people are in awe. They're shouting. They're jumping with, with joy and amazement. They're praising God. At that second, Jesus turns to his disciples and says, let this sink in. The son of man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. I am going to be uh, arrested and crucified. I mean, that, that was following on from what we've heard in Luke. This is, he's saying this for this purpose. He didn't say, you think that was cool? Oh, there's more than that coming. This is just the beginning. His majesty was seen in his transfiguration. His majesty was seen in casting out a demon and Jesus, at that time, he speaks of his betrayal. He's speaking of his death. Now, we're surprised when there's a young, fit person who suddenly passes away through tragic circumstances. Um, can you imagine the Son of God and Messiah, the one who is raising the dead to life, keeps telling you, look, I'm going to soon be betrayed. I'm going to be given into the hands of men. I'm going to die, but I'm going to rise from the dead. He's someone greater than Moses and Elijah. How could he be the Messiah and die? How could he be the king and rule? The disciples didn't understand what Jesus said, and it says it was hidden from them, and they were afraid to even ask him about it. So they remained ignorant. In time, the truth of what Jesus said, it would come to light. Verse 46, Then a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be greatest. And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a little child and set him by him and said to them, whoever receives this little child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. 
For he who is least among you all will be great. Do you sometimes wonder if the disciples were even in the same planet that Jesus was on? (laughs) Right? Like, did they even listen to what he said? And then I realized, oh yeah, I, I can do the same thing. I do the same thing. It's so ironic. On the heels of their inability to cast out a demon, right? All of them failed at this. Now they start arguing over which of them will be the greatest. It seems Jesus is strangely absent from this discussion. Like he's really not in the picture. Jesus has all authority, all power, all glory of God. He humbled himself and the disciples are wrestling for greatness and honor and recognition. It's, it's so ridiculous. It's like little children who, who are foreigners bickering over which of them is going to be the next king. Like it's, it's so silly. It's foolish. Maybe Peter, John, and James thought they had the inside track because they were the ones who saw the glory. They were the ones who went to the mountain with Jesus. Maybe Judas, he thought himself greatest because of his responsibility over the bag and the money. Maybe they, and it seems they imagine the 12 must, the greatest must be among the 12, right? But knowing their thoughts, Jesus provides this little object lesson. He takes a little child and he seats, sits the child by him. And it's a paiodon. Uh, it's a very bad Greek pronunciation, but uh, it denotes a young child still unable to feed himself. So it's like not quite an infant, but uh, not talking and uh, feeding himself yet. So two, three years old, a toddler. And he says, whoever receives this little child in my name receives me. And he who receives me receives the father who sent me. He who is least among you all will be great. Notice that the greatest, that's not even a question. Jesus is the greatest. There's no one like him. But if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, we must be the least. Jesus, he set the example. He's the greatest and he humbled himself beyond all. He allowed himself to be received by helpless, proud men. He lowered himself, it says in Philippians chapter 2, to have no reputation, no claim of honor by his birth, no authority, no power or respect. He came like a baby who could do nothing for himself. The disciples, they were, they imagined they were capable to reign or to rule, but they were less capable of ruling than this little child who sat next to Jesus who couldn't even feed himself. Their idea of the future kingdom, it was fouled. It was distorted by pride and ambition and ignorance while they're disputing over who's the greatest when Jesus is the greatest without rival. Now, in that society, and I think in ours too, probably no one gains honor by holding or feeding babies. But Jesus says those who do so for his sake will be great in God's kingdom. Now, may we be likened to that child that was willing to sit there, that was willing to listen, who's willing to receive whatever is fed him because he couldn't feed himself, Um, reliant upon others for life. And we are to be reliant upon Christ for life because he is truly our life. Luke 9, 49. Now John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we forbade him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not forbid him for he who is not against us is on our side. John answers Jesus 
by telling him, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we forbade him. We said, knock that off because he doesn't follow with us. He's not one of us. Surely Jesus didn't mean that guy was to be received. It seems that the disciples and John here, they thought their, the greatness or their calling was somehow lessened or diminished if others did what they did. And it seemed like this other guy was doing it successfully, right? Um, similar to when Moses, it was reported to him that the Holy Spirit had come upon um, Eldad and Medad who were not at the tabernacle. Moses had appointed 70 elders and he said, meet us at the tabernacle. And the Holy Spirit came upon 68 that were there and they prophesied. Two of them, for whatever reason, they weren't there, but they were in the camp and prophesying. And so some little uh, tattletales came and daubed them in and says, hey, Moses, they're, they're prophesying in the camp. And Moses is like, I wish that all God's people prophesied. Are you zealous for my sake? That's in Numbers chapter 11. Those people were zealous for Moses' glory. But the disciples, they were zealous for their own glory. Jesus corrected John. Those who felt the power of God should be restricted to the specially qualified or earned by being numbered among a particular group, like you have to pay your dues and, and be with us to do what we do. Paul said, even if the gospel goes out out of strife or envy, the gospel's going out so we can rejoice. That was in Philippians 1. We live in a polarized world. It says, if you're not for me, you're against me. It's very easy to operate under that sort of rigid structure with judgments and animosity towards differences. But Jesus says this, and this is, this is heavy. He says, he who is not against us is on our side. And I ask you, are you able to accept this saying? It is a hard saying, but will you accept it? Will you receive it? Instead of criticizing or forbidding this man who's doing God's work in Jesus' name, they were to keep following Jesus. They were to seek his glory, not their own. It wasn't about being greatest in the kingdom of God. Jesus is the greatest. And if you want to be great as he is, you have to be receiving the little ones, doing what doesn't give you the glory or honor that men prefer. They were to labor to make Christ's name great, not protect their own turf. Remember, brothers and sisters, without Jesus, we can do nothing. We can do nothing without him. Unless Jesus helps us, we are lost forever. And even the power and authority of Christ given to us will be impotent. It will be powerless to help unless we trust him. If we aim to be great ourselves, we'll be like the disciples who remained ignorant in their unbelief. But when we humble ourselves, when we rely on Jesus in faith, we make the glory of Christ our ambition, and we can sing with the saints in Psalm 115, verse 1. It says, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory, because of your mercy, because of your truth. Have you considered the majesty of Jesus? Do you wonder over his brilliance and his humility that he would come and humble himself as that little child, that he would be, make himself the least because he is the greatest. May his kingdom come, may his will be done now and forever. Let's just keep praising the Lord. Let's keep looking to him. I think in this passage, there's so many bits where we can really identify with uh, failure, with ignorance, with 
kind of making a push for our own authority or glory, but let's give glory to God. Let's, let's honor and praise him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. And I pray you would minister this word to our hearts, that we would not be like the disciples seeking to be the greatest, wondering, hoping that it would be them, themselves. Uh, Lord, help us to humble ourselves and to draw near to you in faith, trusting you, believing you, asking you those questions, waiting for your answers, um, walking in obedience, Lord. Help us to be those who bring you the honor and glory you deserve. You are majestic. You are glorious. And we praise and honor you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.